Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's April 14th. It's the fifth week of virtual forums for the City Club. And as we are often doing, we're presenting our forum today from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, our public media partner. 20 years ago, the Plain Dealer had 340 union journalists. As of last week, that number is now four, just four after a series of decisions by Advanced Publications, which, which owns both The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com, the online, uh, the online news site. These moves were met with outrage from some in the community, which has seen the number of journalists at The Plain Dealer decrease for years. Others in the community, though, say they had seen this coming, part of a trend spanning more than two decades since the Internet became part of our lives. Cleveland, of course, is not unique. Youngstown lost its daily newspaper last year, and hundreds of cities across the country have lost theirs as well. The old economics of the news business simply no longer work. We'll talk about the crisis in local journalism here in Cleveland and around the country, and at daily newspapers, at alt-weeklies, and elsewhere. And we'll discuss what it means for local communities and for democracy as a whole, and what kind of solutions there might be. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them in. Now, before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to take a moment to thank our generous members, sponsors, and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit cityclub.org slash thank you. And if you'd like to join them in supporting our work through the pandemic, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org slash donate. Now to our speaker, David Falkenflick. He is the media correspondent for NPR News, and he's host and editor of On Point from NPR and WBUR, along with Meghna Chakrabarti. We're so glad to have you. Welcome back to the City Club, David. Hey, delighted to join you even under if for this subject. <laughs> well, I know, I know. Wouldn't it be great if we were talking about, uh, like, you know, journalism awards or something like that. Um, but David, can you uh, can we just review the facts of what has happened in the Cleveland news ecosystem over the past uh, the past two or three weeks? Sure. And listen, nobody knows better about what's happening in Cleveland than the readers there. So I, I want to be careful about sounding like I think I'm the expert on this. You guys are. Your your listeners are. Your members are. Your citizens are. But nonetheless. In, in Cleveland, obviously, the Newhouse uh, family uh, is the, uh, through advanced publications, the owner of The Plain Dealer and the owner of Cleveland.com, its corporate sibling. Uh, it has been in this sort of slow motion uh, extraction of the newsroom from the traditional Plain Dealer model uh, and shifting it over to Cleveland.com. And what you've seen in the last few days is the layoff of almost the entire remaining Plain Dealer staff and the consolidation of the creation of the coverage and content that you read the Plain Dealer uh, from the folks over at 
cleveland.com. It's worth noting, it's not incidental. That's a non-union newsroom over at cleveland.com. It's got a different financial structure. Uh, and you've seen significant amount of, you know, reporting know-how know-how and and intellectual capital walk out the door in in recent years and particularly in in recent weeks as as well. Can you talk about it the difference between the union and non-union kind of scenario that you laid out. Is that a similar situation? Is there a similar situation in other communities, particularly where advanced publications is in control of the large daily news organization? Yeah, this was a template that was uh, established. Uh, you saw it play out in New Orleans and Ann Arbor, uh, Portland, uh, other places where there was a, a merger of the two, and then it was clear that the digital would really essentially be the what had been seen as the tail wagging the dog. Uh, you know, there has been good journalism that has emerged from those newsrooms as well. Uh, and they would argue, you know, the new houses are privately, uh, basically have a privately held empire. So I can't really examine their books the way I could Gannett or the Tribune Company or other uh, publishing uh, powers. Uh, the Newhouse family are the folks who own Condé Nast, which also owns titles like The New Yorker uh, and uh, Vanity Fair and other major magazines. But they would argue they lost money on these papers for a long time, and they carried them for a long time in a, a lot more fully staffed than a lot of places would. And there's probably a decent argument to be made that that is true. What they ended up doing was trying to kind of leap ahead of the class in some ways by going uh, strongly digital, by taking their newspapers to several days a week of, uh, of distributed to your doorstep uh, as opposed to doing it seven days a week. You're now, you, you ended up seeing a lot of other news organizations embracing that as well uh, because there were really only three or four days a week that were profitable. In terms of circulation, the others were lost leaders. There were days of the week that were fat with ads and the days of the week that were not. So even prior to the pandemic, we don't even have to talk about that. You saw this real uh, collision of people's reading habits uh, go- migrating online, but not being uh, practiced in paying for it online. And the money that would have gone towards newspaper subscriptions uh, going towards the folks who were giving you the internet s- service that you read it on online, and uh, giving it towards the social media platforms, particularly Facebook or Google search, uh, where people found uh, coverage they wanted to read. The new house has also made an interesting choice. They very consciously decided not to charge a paywall online. And you know that seems in some ways to have been an original sin starting at the beginning of the consumer web for newspapers, where they didn't initially train readers that, hey, you have to pay for us to read us uh, in print, and we're going to need some money uh, to cover the news online, they thought advertising would migrate from print to digital, and instead of digital dollars becoming, or excuse me, print dollars in advertising becoming print dimes, as we initially thought, it became print pennies, and mm-hmm. that's not a way to sustain news coverage. I'm not saying this to get the the new houses off the hook. I'm just saying uh, that's the dynamic the new houses perceived, and that's how they addressed it. We're talking with David Falcon Flick. He is NPR's media correspondent. He also um, hosts On Point at WBUR. And um, and we're talking specifically about the recent news, the recent changes to the news ecosystem in greater Cleveland, which is significant really for the entire state, and what it says about the state of local journalism here and across the country. Um, David, is this a labor story or is this a media story? I don't think we have to choose. I think it's about uh, journalism. Uh, you know, look, I'm technically on the business desk of NPR, mm-hmm. uh, and 
in my newspaper days when I first covered media for the Baltimore Sun, I resisted going to the business desk. I'm like, I'm not a business reporter. But business decisions that companies and, and individual leaders make uh, affect uh, what people in Cleveland and in Ohio read or see or hear. And the journalism they get, which affects their understanding of their communities and their societies and affect, therefore, the choices they make as citizens as well as consumers. And so this stuff matters. You know, it's not just, hey, did somebody get a little bump for the fourth quarter on this or that? This stuff really matters. It also matters on a human level. People have been shown the door. Over in Chicago, the Tribune Company, which I used to work for, uh, full disclosure, uh, has said, look, we're in a time of, during the pandemic, and we can get to this in a moment, but we're in the time of pandemic and uh, we need to furlough people. Well, that's not uncommon. People understand that. They said, we're going to need to do pay cuts. You know, that's, I think, going to become increasingly common, particularly for upper paid uh, uh, employees. And so people are not unsympathetic to that request. And then they said in the memo from the CEO, and those pay cuts will become permanent. And a lot of journalists were like, wait a minute, folks. You guys are asking us to take a permanent pay cut even after this particular financial crisis passes. They're trying to, you know, in the words of Rahm Emanuel, also of Chicago, uh, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste, right? And as a labor thing, I think we're going to see whether or not, you know, at a time that we're all proclaiming our love and appreciation for healthcare providers, you know, people working in hospitals, whether from the janitors to the CEOs to the, to the, chief, to the chief surgeons, um, you know, our appreciation for that. Are we at the same time going to watch corporations that are taking a big hit to their bottom line say that publicly with their, their advertising campaigns and privately try to wring out greater concessions that last beyond the financial crisis caused by the pandemic? Because that would seem to be uh, opportunism on a rank scale. And as a labor story, I think that's really important to understand as well. What you're seeing in Cleveland is the effort to uh, de-unionize the newsroom, but the new houses would also say they're trying to find a way to make it economically sustainable. You know, if they have, call it 70 plus journalists covering greater Cleveland, that's still at a higher level than you're seeing at some of its peers across the country, which is not to say that I think it's sufficient. My old newspaper is the Baltimore Sun maybe has, I think, an estimated 110 newsroom journalists. Uh, my day, it had over 400. Yeah, and I mean, that's just, just yeah, as you know, saying at the outset time. of this, there were 340 journalists 20 years ago covering uh, Cleveland just for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Um, does it the the union versus non-union piece of this? Um, why is that? Why is it so important, or has it been so important for the Newhouse family to? reduce the size of the union workforce. From another business standpoint, you would think that what you really want are the best journalists, regardless of whether they're union or non-union. I think that's right. Uh, and I can't speak to, you know, my understanding is there have been some terrific journalists inside the Plain Dealer and that there have been some very good journalists as well for, you know, terrific work done as well on the Cleveland.com side. Uh, I think that basically it makes it easier for them to uh, standardize policies and standardize pay rates and probably bring people in at a younger level. You have seen this in newsrooms across the country and certainly uh, what the new houses would say, what you've seen some of their regional executives say, as well as uh, occasionally, although they're pretty tight-lipped on the national level, say is they also wanted to make sure they could hire people who could work at both a pace and with a comfort and ease on, on digital platforms. Uh, and that that wasn't always the case for people who had been in newsrooms for for a very long time. 
I think that that can be true. And at the same time, you can find ways to, to, to integrate these things. But yeah, you want the best possible people to cover uh, the beats and subjects that are most important uh, to people in, in Ohio and in, in greater Cleveland. Uh, and you want to do that on all platforms. You want to do it every way people are getting the news delivered. And you want to do it in ways that uh, take advantage of the possibilities of the digital age and digital platforms and still provide the most rigorous journalism you can. We're talking with David Falkenflick, as I mentioned. He's the media correspondent for NPR, National Public Radio. And um, David, this is not just a problem for daily news organizations. Alt-weeklies have been suffering as well. Cleveland's Alt-weekly, the Cleveland scene, uh, which um, has had its own troubles. And we've seen there was a time when I first moved to Cleveland where there were two Alt-weeklies, and now there's only yep. one. Um, and their staff, their editorial staff, has been uh, reduced from eight to three. Um, and in the as a result of the pandemic, can you talk about what's going on with alt weeklies here and across the country? Yeah, I got this heartbreaking email from a woman named Sarah Rubin, who's the editor of uh, I believe it's called the Monter- uh, Monterey weekly news. I may be getting it slightly wrong. And I ended up calling her back. She just said, "Listen, I've just had to lay off a third of my staff." Uh, we are trying to figure out if we're still going to be able to be published and, and be distributed. If we go dark, nobody in this area is really going to know about our stay in place rules in a live way. Nobody's going to be reporting on it. We are the, the weekly was the kind of the publication of record. It's kind of in the shadow of the Bay Area and San Francisco and all that. And I started looking up and down the California, or the, excuse me, this, the Northwest coast of the US, which is, of course, where the outbreaks first happened in Washington, right? So you saw The Stranger, which is a great, quirky, idiosyncratic weekly in Seattle, basically saying, we're not publishing right now. We're laying off our staff. You had uh, uh, one of the two uh, alternative papers in Portland doing the same. You started seeing a paper in, I believe, St. Louis and Madison, Wisconsin uh, going dark, effectively. I guess there are two folks remaining in St. Louis still posting online, effectively blogging. But it's an incredible threat to an incredibly already fragile uh, industry, the alternative weeklies. And these are places that provide checks on, you know, the scene would be right acerbically and critically and probably not always welcome in doing so, but nonetheless a necessary voice in keeping places like the Plain Dealer and local TV stations honest, right, in their coverage. And these weeklies were canaries in the coal mine. Then you started to see major moves made by more mainstream daily news organizations. Gannett said it would furlough uh, all of its employees. So Gannett owns uh, now over 200 newspapers and it owns USA Today. And it said all of its employees would be furloughed one week out of every month. Well, that's an unpaid time off. That's essentially a 20 to 25% pay cut uh, for the, for the, you know, foreseeable future until the pandemic finances lift. You saw what I mentioned with the Chicago Tribune Company where they've done this to non-union employees, but they said we're going to have a pay cut starting for everybody making over $67,000 a year. And if you don't like it, uh, you can go and uh, apply for severance right now. And so now they're, they're, they've got to negotiate this with unions. One of the interesting things, you, you mentioned unions. Unions have become, if anything, stronger in the last, call it, year and a half, two years uh, at local newspapers, smaller newspapers, Tribune newspapers. It started with the LA Times, which over a more than century history had, had disdained unions and, in fact, had a family history. Uh, the ownership hated unions because uh, labor unions set off a uh, – essentially a bomb that went off in its lobby in the early 1900s that killed several several staffers there. And so the family really recoiled from unions uh, 
it didn't have a newsroom union until a new ownership provided such uh, onerous terms and made clear that it would be essentially not making raises in the future and yet uh, extracting incredible money for executives that it led to a unionization there and at the Chicago Tribune and at Tribune Company newspapers in Virginia. You've seen unionizations at public media stations uh, in places like Boston and New York and elsewhere. You've seen uh, new digital startups like BuzzFeed and Vox, which thought that they were too progressive and woke to need unions. Well, their ownership learned that their staffers felt they did need them. As times got tricky and, and finances looked a little more tentative, they wanted protections and, and security and understanding that there would be a unified entity standing up for them. So it's been interesting seeing these countervailing uh, dynamics and, and pressures, right? Uh, but I think you're seeing this happen right now at a time where uh, Tampa Bay Times, I mentioned, has gone to two days a week publications. They're doing furloughs. Uh, a number of places, including the Cleveland.com, the plain dealer, are asking for voluntary contributions and donations. Sounds a lot like public radio. Uh, it's it's a, a little scary right now, and it's happening at a time that those remaining journalists who aren't being furloughed or laid off are being asked to go and often cover the pandemic. Some of them exposing themselves to circumstances in which social distancing is tough. You've seen reporters now try to get into hospital rooms to convey to people what kind of peril things really pose. So we get beyond bureaucratic sounding language to understand that this is essentially kind of the front of a war. Uh, and uh, the juxtaposition of these uh, incredible hours that journalists are putting in, these sometimes... Uh, risks that journalists are taking to let their readers, viewers, and listeners understand the world as it really happens, whether it's in New York or in your community or in uh, Wuhan province or in Lombardy, Italy, uh, those risks, and then being asked to take furlough time and then being asked to take permanent pay cuts, uh, there's a real stark uh, uh, disparity there between uh, effort and reward. We are talking with David Falkenflick of NPR. He's the media correspondent there. We're talking about What's happening in local news here in greater Cleveland and across the country? Last week, as many of you know, there were layoffs at the Plain Dealer on the un in the unionized newsroom at the Plain Dealer. The non-union newsroom at Cleveland.com still remains and still remains uh, fairly well staffed at more than 70 journalists working there. If you have a question for us, for David Falkenflick, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can send it uh, via Twitter at The City Club, and we'll work it into the conversation. Um, I'm Dan Malthrop, by the way, with The City Club. And David, you mentioned something that I don't want to gloss over, that Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn yesterday sent out an email uh, to readership uh, saying, please give us a voluntary online $10 a month subscription. This followed something that has happened elsewhere at Advance uh, Publications in other markets. And also, you mentioned Vox. Vox has done the same. Um, what is going on there? And can you put that in the context of the, the actual business model for, uh, for media organizations today? Back in you know, 20, 30 years ago, newspapers, daily newspapers were raking in margins of 20 to 30 percent. What does it look like today? I think it very much varies by dint of uh, ownership and their strategies. If you look at Alden Global Capital, that's an investment fund based in New York, very secretive about what it does. Uh, 
it controls a company that that sort of goes by the name Media News, which owns uh, major newspapers, and it's hard to keep track because often they're shuffled like cards in a deck. But uh, places like uh, San Jose and Denver is one of its mainstays, and others in major cities across the country where it is really cut and gut, you know, uh, muscle, bone, and marrow. Not to get too graphic about it. Uh, I went to to Denver and did a story a couple summers ago. Uh, they had cut to a, a, a metro region that's larger than Cre- Cleveland. They had cut down to 60 people uh, and there were fears it would be cut down further as well. But you know they did it in a particularly amazing way. They have a union there. They said, listen, we're gonna get rid of our downtown headquarters and so you're all gonna have to drive more. Uh, I talked to a number of reporters there, including a guy who covered six counties you know, outside of, of Denver. That's a lot of real estate to cover, right? And he said, he said okay, we'll allow it them to get rid of our downtown headquarters because you know what uh they've said that it'll stop they laid off had laid off a third of the staff they said it'll stop more layoffs so they basically had refashioned a newsroom in the in what was the printing press plant and that's okay a lot of news organizations have done this newspapers have done this they've sold off real estate to conserve money and they've done this well a few months after that ownership came back and laid off another third of the staff wow you know, Alden has really just gone in the idea that we are going to try to sustain profit levels like 15 to 20 percent like we had in like newspaper industries had in earlier days. And it's really an extraction strategy or strip mining strategy that, you know, you explode the top of the mountain, you extract what you can and you move on. Uh, Alden says that that's not a fair characterization. They want to find a sustainable business model, but they define sustainable as extracting an incredible amount of money. I don't think the new houses are in the same model, but if you live in a city like Cleveland and you see a staff diminish to call it 70 staffers, you know, if you're not getting sufficient uh, coverage or or what you think of as the accountability jur- journalism or even the diversion and illumination and stimulation that you think you need to know about your the people who live around you, the, you know, the excitement, the joy of life that happens every day in the Cleveland area as well, you, you may not see that big a difference, uh, but own global capital has really sought to boost that. The folks who uh, run Gannett uh, are really a combined of what was Gatehouse newspapers and Gannett newspapers. They own major dailies in Arizona and Indianapolis and Detroit and elsewhere. Uh, They uh, haven't quite done that. They have put money into journalism. At the same time, they've extracted just an extraordinary amount of money uh, for their owners, which are softback, uh, excuse me, it's called Fortress Investment Group, which is what it sounds like, and it's owned by the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank. Uh, And what they've done is they've uh, sent tens of millions of dollars in consulting fees to their owners uh, for legal and accounting and other costs. And it's been sort of this extraction model as well in a slightly different and maybe slightly less onerous model. But it it, it sounds a little nefarious, though, to set it up with these sort of legal fees and consulting fees and and so forth, just a a way to, to call the extraction something other than what it is. Well, I mean, if you forgive my language, it certainly shocked the hell out of me when I realized that was part of the model. They claim, listen, you'd have to build that. You'd have to have your own legal structure. You'd have to have your own accounting structure. These were costs that would be born otherwise, but it sure feels like a lot of money is drained out. Otherwise, why would Fortress be in this business at all? Why would they want to do it? This is, you know, some say it's a dying, dying industry. Some say it's an ailing industry, uh, which gives it the opportunity to to maybe uh, heal up if a more sustainable future is found. So some people have said that the that asking a, 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 an organization such as Cleveland.com or Vox 
asking of its readers, please send us $10 a month, sounds like desperation. Or it sounds like, hey, maybe as you alluded to earlier, we should have been asking you for this all along, and now we're finally getting around to it. Um, what difference does it make to the bottom line? Is it a desperate? Is it a desperation move, or is it, or is it more like we should have been asking you for this? Uh, I think that there are a lot of people in newspaper journalism who say this was uh, the original sin of the digital age, as far as print journalism goes. You know, newspapers have tended to be the the horsepower that drives the engine of local journalism. Uh, it inspires not all, but most local TV news reporting. Uh, I think a lot of local public radio stations have become more aggressive about doing original reporting and seeing an opportunity and an obligation in the current age to step in and do more, both in, in formats like this and in, uh, in, in original reporting. Uh, and I think that's to the credit of public radio stations that you really see them stepping up. But it, if something like newspapers don't survive, it's, it's, I think there are going to be incredible gaps in our knowledge of what happens. And this is something that needs to be paid for. Back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, you had classified ads. You had national ads advertising in local and regional newspapers. Uh, and the combination – and you had auto and real estate – uh, the combination of these things made papers fat, happy, and 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 lazy, and intellectually lazy about the challenges that that went ahead. And Craigslist stripped out uh, classifieds. Right? You have uh, realtors able to go post their own things online. People don't need real estate sections as much anymore. Uh, and a lot of national consolidation in department stores, uh, the, the, the growth of Amazon and other things. I don't need to tell people how they live their lives now, but these things have an effect on the newspapers that used to serve as the conduit. I used to think that people were, when I was at the Baltimore Sun starting out my my mid-20s, right? I thought that I was the, what was being delivered to people and being paid for. Actually, the product of newspapers were the eyeballs of their readers, and they were selling it to advertisers. So about eight, $0.80 cents out of every dollar of revenue were produced, 75 to $0.80 cents were produced by the advertising. 20 25% of the dollars were produced by the subscriptions. Well, that is on its way to being inverted. Uh, and it, a lot of that is simply by virtue of the fact that uh, advertisers have disappeared and gone online or market directly. Uh, but a lot of that is also because people aren't subscribing and paying for print editions anymore. And we didn't train people as news. I'm saying we. I'm, I haven't been in newspapers in 15 years. But we, <laughs> newspapers didn't train people uh, that they needed to pay for this content. Reporting is expensive. It is an amazing thing. But it's not. People aren't saying, "Let me pay you 15 bucks for this report on city council." But they sure as heck want to know if people are being honest or not. My diminished newspaper, the Baltimore Sun, still did this incredible story about how the then mayor of Baltimore forced uh, all these uh, local institutions to buy hundreds of thousands of copies of her book so that she could net all this money, a children's book she'd written that were stashed in warehouses and not distributed. And it turned out the corruption extended to all these other institutions like uh, one of the major hospital systems in town. That was reporting that got the mayor forced out of office for corruption, and it wouldn't have happened without newspaper reporters taking the time to do it. But nobody up front would have said, I'll pay you you know, $2 a week to do city hall reporting. That, so that's the, that brings us to this question, uh, of the solutions question. And there's a lot of conversations that have been happening here in Cleveland and across the country about emerging nonprofit models to support investigative journalism or daily news journalism. Are there any that are, I mean, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Are there any that are working? This is a real, a very, very active discussion here. 
you're talking about uh, possible ventures that can work in, that are instead of a newspaper model. Correct. Yeah, instead of the, the traditional commercial newspaper, you know, whether it's, I mean, and there are little bits and pieces, right? Like Report for America is doing, is trying to use a nonprofit model to complement existing journalism, but it feels a little bit like a, perhaps a Band-Aid on a, on a knife wound. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where where you're rooting for it, and it can help supplement. It can help things pop and come to life. I don't think it replaces. I think it it helps those that are still there do things. Uh, if you were to say, well, well, forget Gannett; these guys aren't worth it. You, you know, you'd see newspapers across the country disappeared that still do some important work. You know, the Arizona Republic has done great work uh, in the early Trump years. Think of all the crises about immigration, right? Uh, that's. Uh, that's something the Arizona Republic did very good work on. If you think about it, Indianapolis did incredible stuff about, uh, I think it's Olympic coaches and uh, child abuse. You know, there, it, it's things like Report for America, you know, help build on. They say, we'll, put, we'll help uh, subsidize some investigative reporting in your ranks by putting some extra reporters there. ProPublica, uh, which is a not-for-profit phenomenal investigative journalism outlet uh, started by a couple of uh, alums of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they are partnering with a lot of news organizations initially to run their uh, investigations in markets and regions where their findings are particularly germane. But now they're doing it to embed reporters in these outfits as ProPublica reporters in those newsrooms to help them drive locally generated and organically uh, created reporting. Uh, you've seen John Thornton uh, and Evan Smith created the Texas Tribune, which has been, I think, an incredible benefit for Texas. It's really a... Uh, an outlet that focuses uh, in an intent way on politics and policy and the effects of politics and policy, not just who's up or down, not just the Politico model, which is fun, but the, the effects of that is, I think, really important to people understanding their world. That's been great for Texas, and they've done some partnering, uh, but John Thornton, who was the, the hedge fund guy who was the founder of that because he saw a need for it in a democratic society, is now trying to give out grants uh, to news organizations across the country to help them uh, build up their investigative efforts. And it's doing it to some established newsrooms and trying to also encourage journalistic entrepreneurs. You've seen little outlets. Uh, VT Digger is a small digital outlet in Vermont uh, that's doing some really good work. Uh, the Baysider in in uh, in the Bay Area of California. There are a bunch of green shoots, but we're a huge country with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of markets. And there's no one model that you look at and say, that's cracked the code. It's going to be fine. I don't see that yet. So uh, if you'd like to join our conversation, you have a question for David Falkenflick, please text it to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794, or you can tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program here. Um Here's a question from one of our audience members here. Uh, can you speak about the recent Brookings study on the demise of local newspapers and how hyperpartisanship arises when citizens are disengaged at the local level? And can our schools play a role in reinvigorating the commitment to local print journalism? I think that uh, schools can help reinvigorate uh, media literacy and critical thinking. And, you know, it used to be a part of civics. You used to be required to read the newspaper and give uh, feedback on 
current events and do that often through a newspaper. It encouraged learning, it encouraged uh, reading, it encouraged critical thinking, it, it, it often stimulated curiosity as well as a lot of rolled eyes. I mean, look, I first started to read the newspaper because of the sports pages. Let's be honest here. I was interested in that. I was interested in Doonesbury, and then something really uh, flourished for me. So I, I got interested in history as well. But uh, I would say that uh, schools can play a real role in in news literacy, which is the understanding of sort of absorbing what you see and then figuring out how authoritative is this? How do I know that what they're presenting to me is true? How much, uh, how much in the way of uh, firsthand sourcing are they providing? What's on, wh what are named uh, people who are being quoted in here instead of just assertions that are being made? What links are being provided? What documents can I review? These, these are actually excellent uh, exercises that uh, teachers in high schools and even junior high schools can do for things like history and English and related fields. Uh, I think that's important because I think as you absorb those values, you value the sources that give you things. One of the things that's really interesting right now is that studies are showing is that there is a ferocious demand for nonpartisan news right now, for nonpartisan outlets. Uh, you're seeing it online. NPR.org, for example, is skyrocketing. Uh, you're seeing this in local n newsrooms across the country where they're getting bigger audiences online than sometimes they've ever had in the past. And because of the finances, they're being forced to furlough employees. Uh, but I think that you see at moments of crises that people turn to uh, what they view as reliable and authoritative sources of news, whether or not there may be a point of view, but things where they can just get facts. And the question is how we sustain those institutions so that they're for people. The power will always, the lights will always be on regardless of whether or not we're at a fever pitch in the country at that moment. I want to provide an update to part of the conversation that we've been having here with David Falkenflick. We talked before about the um, $10 a month plea from Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn to readers asking for contributions and donations. Uh, one of our City Club members for just forwarded me an email, David, um, uh, email exchange from between him and Chris Quinn, and which ends with, if you are worried about the reduction in the number of journalists in Cleveland, that is why we are seeking support. We hope to avoid further reductions. Right. Well, these were things that clearly Advance had planned before the pandemic. Right. These were not things just done spur of the moment. And so the pandemic now threatens the finances of everyone in uh, pretty much fit, threatens the finances almost everyone across the country, every industry, large and small. But it threatens uh, news coverage greatly because advertisers are no longer encouraging people to come shop there and they don't have a lot of money to play with. And that's a problem. You know, airlines aren't taking out big full page ads in the plane dealer to say, hey, you can get away because people aren't getting away and because people often can't. So I don't think that that statement sounds disingenuous. I don't know, but it doesn't sound disingenuous at all. That sounds it doesn't sound like disingenuous. It sounds like, no, this is for real. I mean, we may, the, the 70 reporters at cleveland.com may find them their ranks being reduced as well. Well, a question is whether that would be permanent or, or temporary because of the crisis, whether they do furloughs that would then ebb or whether they'd seek to uh, really diminish things even when finances come back, which would then tell you something different or, or further put it that way about ownership. But, you know, you think about the voluntary contributions thing. Uh, when the New York Times started back with what has now been a roaring success, but they didn't know when they started with this paywall uh, how it would go. They'd tried it, if you recall, initially by sequestering uh, – 
their op-ed coverage and that really was a disaster of a paywall and they lifted that and then they came back and uh, some years ago and said we're going to do this you can see a, read a certain number of articles a month and i think they've really diminished how many that is and then after a certain point you have to pay more like the wall street journal and i talked to arthur salzberger jr who's now the chairman no longer the publisher of the paper and he said you know we look at this a little bit like npr he said, you guys get for your member stations an average of about 10% of your listeners contribute every month. And that's completely voluntary. You're going to be on the air either way. He said, if we could get 5%, if we could get 10% someday, but if we could get 5% of our people who come to us to read some free comment, uh, content every month on our website to pay for a digital subscription, he said, that would go a long way to erasing uh, what we've done. Well, the New York Times has never had more journalists on staff than it has now. The definition of what a journalist is is very different than it would have been 30 years ago. You're including a lot of people in sort of this netherworld of, of social media promotion and, and tech and other stuff, but their newsroom nonetheless is larger than it's ever been, and that's as a result of their, their paywall because they have been able to convince their readership, I think on good grounds, that what they do is pretty indispensable. The challenge for local news organizations is to demonstrate that what they do is indispensable and that they will keep doing it, and that therefore... People will buy in and say, you know what, we're going to pay for you to do it online. The new house strategy has always been, well, you may think that we're doing things differently and that may be frustrating, but we're never going to charge you. So they're they're asking for it as a voluntary subscription right now. You know, related question here, is there a, a, an opportunity for public media organizations, public radio stations to fill a void? 100%. I think it's almost, uh, if you think about what our mission is at National Public Radio, what the mission is at places like IdeaStream and, and other public broadcasters, particularly public radio, which I think has done a much better job than public television in filling this and, and embracing this challenge, I think it's imperative that it step up and find ways to uh, fill the gaps. I think you've seen that in some major markets. You've seen it in some smaller ones. It's tough. It's hard. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I can tell you as, as a refugee from newspapers myself that it's a challenge to tell a story on deadline, on radio, to a much greater degree than it is to knock something out in a laptop, hit send that's just text, even as though that's even though that's its own art form. It just takes more work. It takes more time to do the same story that you would have done for print. And if you're taking people from the world of print and teaching them how to do radio, that takes a lot of time too, both in terms of getting the audio and sounds but hearing it in your head it just it i would pay people money to not go back and listen to what i did the first couple of years i was on <laughs> but i'm but i'm so proud of having made that transition because i love telling stories this way uh but it's a i think it's imperative that whether through partnerships or, or whether through uh uh deciding just to expand staff on their own that news organizations find ways whether through foundations whether through collaborations uh, find either uh, staffers they can tab to do things on their air from local news outlets. If you think of St. Louis, St. Louis Public Radio, uh, if I recall correctly, partnered with the Riverfront Times, I think, to create a joint newsroom. I can't remember the details, but they, they partnered with a print outfit and said, we're going to do more work together. I think in Miami, the, the Herald did that with the, the, the public radio uh, member station down there. And I think it's been a benefit to have those things. Or you can go get money from foundations if they have money left to give and say, it's now or never. This is a time we need to step up. Another question. Uh, can you talk about what's going on at Hearst? I've seen reports they're actually hiring, unlike other news organizations that are decimating their ranks. I mean, uh, Hearst has got a pretty boss approach to this. They've said, 
we're not going to furlough. They said, we're not going to lay people off. We are going to pay people to do their jobs. And in some cases, we may be hiring some folks as well. They are a privately held company. Uh, and they have often run a tight ship and they've reduced their staff at a lot of newsrooms over a lot of years too, if you look, go back and look at the clips. So I want to be careful in making clear about that. But they're saying this would be the wrong time financially to make people take a hit and to make the people in the communities that we're covering and care about take a hit. And I think they're trying to show incredible corporate leadership during this time. It's uh, it's one of about 74 stories that's on my list that I want to do because it's <laughs> it's an you know, it's an interesting and newsworthy and noteworthy development and I think it deserves highlighting. Is that because they're privately held and I mean cleveland.com in advance is also privately held, but it's a different as you said, it's a different model of of being a privately held company where you can hang on to cash, presumably, and prepare for the the tough times. I don't entirely, both, look, Hearst and, and, and the new houses are actually incredible rivals. The Hearst company and Condé Nast, are, uh, which is owned by the new house family uh, and is a sister company to Advance Publications, uh, they are huge rivals in magazines, you know, uh, if you think of GQ versus Esquire, those are owned by these two rival companies, right? So in a sense, these are uh, not antipodes, but these are alternative realities of each other. There's no reason that one couldn't have done the other. My guess is a lot of it has to do with finances or where the family is at this point in its uh, progression. Cy Newhouse and, and his uh, his family for a lot of years did lose a lot of money on not all, but some of their papers. And they did carry them uh, at bigger staffs than would have made financial sense. The New York Star-Ledger used to be a huge staff before they got rid of 44% of their uh, their newsroom in a single day through buyouts. Uh, it was an extraordinary day. And, and at that time, there was such carnage going on. Uh, this was, I think, during the last Great Recession that it barely got a blip. Uh, but... That said, Hearst has at once, you know, cut its staff back and yet not done so with the incredible uh, alacrity of, say, the Alden Global Capital folks uh, who, as I said before, have media news and also are the largest single owner of the Tribune company. Uh, and so I think you, you could have seen it play differently if you had different leadership uh, and perhaps the finance has been a little different at the Newhouse things. Again, because they're public privately held companies, it's much harder to penetrate and really see what the numbers look like. David Falkenflick of NPR is our guest for the City Club Forum. Another question, David, the athletic claims profitability. And while sports coverage has a more natural nationwide audience than local journalism, it's still largely a network of local beat reporters on local beats. Could a similar model of local coverage and national profits work in straight news? That's really interesting. You're, he's, forgive me. He's talking about the athletic. And, he's talking about and, the athletic, but wondering if the if that model, um, because because the athletic is essentially a bunch of local reporters, right, with local locally geographically focused beats that are knit together through this national organization. Um, is there is there an interest? Is there a, a model there that could be applied to straight news? You know, I mean, the Associated Press does that in a sense. It has reporters all over, and its members uh, pay it money to give it news that then appear in places like Cleveland.com or uh, WBAL-TV's website or on on its air in Baltimore or, you know, any of a couple thousand other members. Uh, in terms of direct-to-consumer, I would love it to be so. I'm not convinced— <laughs> Uh, but, you know, people do that when they subscribe to national publications. 
uh, or or they or they pay money to be a member of a local station, but get national news from their uh, from NPR on their local stations. Right? Uh, it's a the problem is is that people have not tended to pay in great numbers for hard news. They've paid for it packaged with other things like sports, like entertainment, particularly back in days where it was harder to get that kind of information. They paid for it. At times, people were paying for the ads and the coupons in newspapers. That was a major source of, of people's attention uh, and a major source of revenue for the newspapers themselves. Uh, I think that the question would be, would you want to do it on a subscriber basis? Would you want to do it on a donation basis and become members? You've seen the Atlantic Monthly. It has really jacked up its cost, uh, but it's become a pretty terrific and expanded magazine with an expanded digital uh, offering, and it's done so with a paywall. So the real question is, could you get folks together? I guess in some ways that maybe an analog would be what USA Today did about four years ago uh, under Joanne Lippman when she was the uh, editor-in-chief of, of uh, or the editorial director there at Gannett. And what she did was she created what she called the USA Today Network. Uh, and you saw the branding appear in the national sections of their local newspapers across the country. And they then would take some of the best of their reporting from those news organizations and share it with their sister publications around the country in a more concerted way. And people subscribe to the local paper. But do I think that people would have gotten together and done a lot of subscriptions to uh, Gannett as a corporation for that? I think they may want some more attachment to their local, you know, the closer you are, the more of a loyalty you probably have, unless it's a great national title like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Listening to these models makes me think of patch.com. Which, as I say it, remind, makes me think of like Friendster or something. You know, like I mean, uh -huh. is, is Patch even still a thing? Uh, it's out there. Uh, it provides uh, you know little bits of hyperlocal news. I think it's. Uh, I can't claim to be expert on it. I haven't followed it so closely in recent years. But my sense is it's extremely up and down. There are some former journalists there doing things, and professionals of other kinds who are who are writing there. Mm -hmm. And there's some folks who are just kind of churning content in two or three paragraph little nuggets. Uh, and I don't think, I don't get the great sense that any great loyalty is bound to that. By virtue of that, people can often get at least equivalent information from City Hall online. Sure. Uh, so it's, uh, it, I don't see that as a, the solution that it was once presented as being, and it certainly does not seem to be a category killer. Another question here, why don't news outlets utilize micropayments and ask people to pay for individual articles if they aren't subscribing? Is anyone doing that? So... I work, uh, NPR's headquarters are in D.C., and, and when I'm not, you know, basically uh, quarantined for, for uh, <laughs> entering in a global pandemic, I work in New York in uh, Midtown uh, overlooking this place called Bryant Park, and it's a beautiful little uh, uh, refurbished park uh, right near the New York Public Library, the great place there. The number of meetings I've had on folding chairs on the lawn there, talking with entrepreneurs, talking about micropayments, I cannot count. Uh, and the number of times that you in Cleveland or most readers or listeners uh, would have uh, been aware of that would be almost counted on a single hand, or if at all, because for some reason it has not taken root. The logic is there. Hey, you sign up through Apple Pay or something else, right? Uh, and there were rudimentary models that tried to do this, but you, you sign up that way and you ultimately just pay a tiny flat fee or for, or for an app, and then you only pay for what you read. So what could be better? But People don't seem to be consuming news the way they consume uh, chocolate chip cookies. 
you know? They seem to be wanting to have an ongoing connection. And the problem is at the moment they're paying the ongoing connection to their internet provider and their mobile phone uh, provider as opposed to the folks who are working their tails off to get you that news and that information. You know, NPR, I love the model. I love the way Ira Glass says, you know, if you give us nothing, we'll still be here. But if we're being honest with ourselves, if people collectively give us nothing, there's a lot less that we're going to be offering you here. So, what so, you know, it costs money to do it. It does cost money. How do you feel about discussions of direct government support of journalism, the BBC model? I think that it is interesting and instructive that we are uh, among sort of developed so-called Western, you know, developed industrialized countries. We're really the holdout that provides almost no money for journalism. We do it in terms of our foreign federally subsidized broadcasters like Voice of America, which are independent but are promoting American interests by promoting knowledge of American values and democracy, at least when it's focusing right. And there is money for uh, PBS and NPR member stations and for PBS itself and a scrap of money for NPR. It's really a tiny, tiny amount. Uh, and yet it does come with complications. The BBC does great work. It does wonderful work and it sets the standard for a, 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 a civil discourse and sober reflection on the news. It also, I think at times, leads the BBC to pull its punches. It's a little tentative because it has, I think in part because it has such an overwhelmingly influential position in British journalism. It's nervous about getting out too far. Uh, and also, I think, because of its relationship with the government, which allows it to set fees that are charged to every person who has a TV set in the country, which is crazy to think about, but is the way in which they ensure that it has money to do things. And conservative governments tend to come to power promising to slash the heck out of its budget. It's a little bit what you hear about uh, funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which federally charted co corporation that doles out federal funds to PBS and NPR member stations and, and initiatives. Uh, you tend to hear that from a lot of Republicans right around election time, and then they tend to shut up about it because it turns out that actually a lot of listeners in states red and blue really care about what they see and hear on public uh, broadcasting stations. So I, I think it comes with complications. I'm not inalterably opposed to it ideologically. I think it, devil would very much be in the details. It could be a conduit through which political uh, influences tried to be uh, exerted. I think NPR has weathered some of those storms and showed that it can be independent, reporting critically upon government officials in all branches uh, and uh, holding folks accountable. There will be critics of NPR that would say that we're a bit more tentative than uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times say in some of its investigative efforts. Uh, because of that, I think it tends to be more about how we evolved as an institution. Another question here, are there examples of places where the local paper is successful and not under the thumb of an out-of-town owner? The, the, this tweeter uh, writes about the Dispatch in Columbus, Newsday on Long Island, Review Journal in Las Vegas. Not sure if those are examples, but places I know, with, I know of with local papers that at least at some point weren't under the thumb of out-of-town owners. Fascinating examples. If you take Newsday, I think it's owned by Jim Dolan, who owns uh, the... Uh, no, I, I think it's now owned by Altice, which is a French company that took over Cablevision and Optimum, this uh, cable provider in, in Long Island and the outskirts of New York City. It used to be owned by Jim Dolan, the widely reviled owner of the New York Knicks. Uh, and they've had a heck of a lot of cuts there. If you take the, the Review Journal in Las Vegas, I did a number of uh, stories about 
the takeover of that initially secretly uh, by the family of Sheldon Adelson, who is the most powerful person in Nevada, uh, a casino magnate, uh, the probably the most important donor to the Republican Party causes, uh, major player in, in Nevada and in the nation, and who was very secretive about taking it over. So there's a evidence of a lack of transparency there on his part. However, you have seen some places that have, uh, w- w- which are weathering storms, perhaps, uh, I believe Minneapolis, uh, a local uh, major investor stepped in and took over in that newspaper has found a good model for itself in the wake. The Boston Globe has had some real cuts, but John Henry, who's a major investor uh, over many years, also the owner of the Boston Red Sox, it's a point of pride for him and his family's wife, who's, uh, I believe, one of the general managers of the newspaper, to be civic players in a responsible way. So even as they have uh, diminished significantly the size of the Boston Globe in recent years after its finances have taken huge hits, They've tried to sustain it as a memorable and important source of news, and I think it's very much tried to live up to that. So I think that there are ways in which enlightened local ownership, while coming with some complications, you have the same guy owning or the same couple owning the Boston Red Sox as the newspaper that covers the Boston Red Sox. That's complicated. But at the same time, you've seen folks where civic leaders who step in and do that and take pride in their their role in that have made a difference. But uh, I think perhaps the best example in some ways, the Los Angeles Times, uh, Patrick uh, Sunchong, uh, uh, a physician, a medical inventor, a billionaire, uh, was uh, the second largest owner in the Tribune Company, kind of disgusted in seeing how uh, his partners were running the Tribune Company and ended up buying it outright. And he sees himself, I think, evolving into a major civic figure in Los Angeles. And the Times, although itself suffering tough finances at the moment, has really invested in a major way in its coverage in a way that people should be proud of there. David, last question here from uh, one of our community members having to do with the Texas Tribune. Any lessons from the Texas Tribune, that nonprofit model that emerged about a decade ago? Well, I think uh, you could go and find some of what John Thornton, its founder, and Evan Smith, its founding uh, uh, CEO, had to say. They've done a great job there. I think part of what they tried to do was forge a connection with their readers and with their members. They sought a membership model. Uh, they've had live events there that certainly aren't possible now. I think they're doing some virtual ones like you and I are doing today. But they forged a, a meaningful relationship in, in terms of their journalism, their partnerships, public forums at which people could see uh, leading public figures and other players in civic society in Texas uh, questioned and pressed on some of their initiatives and beliefs. Uh, so you saw sort of real-time accountability in, in an interviewing style that would be familiar to listeners of public radio. Uh and the idea of subscription, you, you value this, you care about this, you get something out of the live events, you get something out of what you read, support what we do. And so they've been able to, I think, uh, as ProPublica has, diversify from just a single source of revenue and a single source of philanthropic revenue to uh, uh, more legs of the stool, call it, more sources of revenue, more broadly gauge public support. And I think the thing that you're learning is whether you're a newspaper or a radio station uh, whatever kind of news you provide, you need to have uh, broad public support and forge a kind of relationship with your audience, whether geographic-based or interest-based like The Athletic, uh, so that people have a stake in your continued success. David Falkenflick is the media correspondent for National Public Radio, and he hosts On Point uh, from WBUR as well. David, uh, we can't thank you enough for helping to put this local crisis in a broader context and helping us understand better the stakes for this moment. Um, David Falkenflick, thank you so much for being a part of our forum today. You bet. Thanks, my friend. Take care. And uh, so... 
Today's forum is part of our Reimagining Journalism series, sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation. In addition, City Club virtual forums are sponsored also by Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and PNC, with additional support from Bank of America, the Center for Community Solutions, St. Luke's Foundation, and Thompson Hine, and many more generous members, sponsors, and donors who are listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. If you'd like to join them in supporting our work, you can make a contribution online at cityclub.org donate. We're going to continue to present our forums throughout this time, either on virtual platforms and, uh, or here from the IdeaStream studios. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature while we are sheltering in place, please get in touch. You can find us at cityclub.org or on Facebook, on Twitter as well. I'm Dan Maltrip. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay close in your hearts. If you can't be close in person, our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.